Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, welcome to the 326th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Aisha Solomane and Kyle McConaughey. Kyle, we see you, buddy. You went from 20 to 25, and I think that deserves an extra shout out. Good on you, Kyle, for raising your patron amount. I might even shout you out next week because maybe he did it for me and it's not as valuable to have you shout him out. We're going to cover you on both episodes. Did you introduce yourself, Arnie? I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Warren Kaplan. And today we have Cameron Fife on the podcast. He is a producer, director, writer, primarily a producer. He's produced a lot of things, probably a lot of things that you've seen. He's done a lot of comedy specials. He just did one with Howie Mandel, I saw on IMDb, for Netflix and for various networks. He's done a lot of music videos of all sizes. He actually produced... Definition, Please, which was a movie directed by Sujata Day, who was on the podcast recently and who reintroduced us to Cameron. It is a fun conversation and we kind of really dive deep on defining yourself as the jobs you do for money versus the jobs you do as your passion project and kind of the work that you are trying to make as a profitable business. You know, are you pitching an indie film to make money? Are you making an indie film in order to advance your career and kind of how do you how do you weigh those two things I think is an interesting thing we talked about lastly Cameron does have some indie films out on Netflix that you can see right now or to your point the idea of dividing up your passion projects from your money jobs is a theme that we see in the show all the time but I think it's a pretty common problem specifically for producers right because it's a long term project you know, like you producers are on for like the the majority of the film's life. They're the ones dissolving the LLC years after it stops making money, all that stuff. And so the question of how do you how do you make a living producing is a pretty pertinent one to producers in this exact moment. And so I think Cameron has done a really good job of segmenting his passions with his professional work and making it all work in a way that makes a ton of sense. And so we talk a little bit about that and I thought it was pretty inspiring for people. Before we hop in with Cameron, I'm dying to know, Matt, what have you been thinking about lately? Is Oren getting better at segues or is he getting worse at remembering the catchphrase? And the answer is uh, the former, not the latter. Neither. I've been kind of emailing people. We talked about it in a previous episode, like, you know, kind of just dropping people a line and saying hello. And uh, I've got some new work that I'm fond of and proud of and, and thought, you know, is worth sharing with people. Can you define people? People who I have worked with in the commercial realm who would be interested in seeing my work. So that could be producers, that could be EPs, that could be fellow directors even. Mostly it's kind of people who work at production companies who are on the lookout for the sort of work that I do. So it's not just me being like, hey, I'm really proud of this and I think you'd like it. It's funny, don't you think? 
it's more like, oh, I think this is valuable to you in some way in so much as you knowing my reel makes you a little bit better at your job because maybe you can book a, some work for your company thanks to, uh, you know, me pitching with you or something like that. And, you know, I've been really slow and really selective. I kind of like to personalize the emails, actually make it an excuse to like say hello to someone and all of that. So I've been taking my time. I have a spreadsheet of all of the different people that I contact and how frequently I do. And I try to kind of like, you know, over the years, you meet so many different people and all of this and all these different companies and people go from one company to another that it just kind of found it worthwhile to keep track. But it occurred to me that all of these contacts, they're a few years old. And I used to pride myself on being good at expanding my network, working with other companies and, and finding, you know, other people to collaborate with. And I think that that is kind of an important skill for a director to have because you can be the go-to director for a company for years, for years and years and years, and truly like love working with the people that you work with and all that. But at a certain point, they can't pitch you anymore because you're too expensive or they've pitched you a million times and, and the client or the agency wants to mix it up for what there's a million different reasons why and certainly none of them should you You stormed off the set last time and ran into the producer's car i mean look you make a joke but like you accidentally make a joke that offends somebody or you uh you go over budget or or you know there's all sorts of little personal things or it could just be the way the wind's blowing who knows but i guess what i'm saying is that if you kind of are counting on a few companies eventually those leads are going to dry up and you're going to be in trouble. So I thought to myself as I was doing this kind of work. W-W-O-D. What would Oren do? Yes, Mm -hmm. that's exactly right. What would Oren do? Because I think that you have done a good job uh, over the last few years in particular of like finding and growing that network. It used to be that you and I were up against each other all the time. And part of the reason that was the case was because we worked with the same producers. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they'd pitch you or they'd pitch me. And that's happening less and less over the years. I was like, I wonder if Oren has any tips and tricks, the things that he loves the most for growing your network. I thought this is a thing that filmmakers out there need to know. I'll start with the way that I have typically grown my network has been all social. It's been like I work with a company. I've got a friend there. They send my reel along. I get hired. I do a good job. Those producers go on to other companies. They're looking for somebody who does the things things that I do. Maybe I post about it on Facebook or on Instagram or something and say like, hey, I just had so much fun doing this. I stay top of mind. And then when they're at this other company, they're like, oh, we should call my friend Matt. Try to do this thing. He's great at comedy and this is a comedic spot. And so he could be good for it. And that's how that network has grown over the years. What do you do, Oren, besides that? I made a quick list of seven different ways I meet companies. And then just to reiterate, the goal is we're directors, freelance directors. We do a lot of commercials and branded content, some episodic things and whatnot. And we're talking about how do we meet the companies that need to hire directors that will potentially pay us to work for them. And I will preface this with, I feel like it's never good to be like, hey, do you have any work? I'm available. And it's always better to say like, Hey, I was just thinking about you because of this. I used the thing from the thing we shot in a treatment and, and I got it. But, you know, by the way, here's some new work. Basically keeping the conversation alive and showing work as opposed to asking for work. Because I don't know why I feel like asking for work when you're 
a director, it's like an immediate turnoff because you never should get work because you ask for it or because you need it. In this realm, you should get it because you're right for it. People want to hire directors because they're in demand, because they're talented, because they're doing awesome work. Because they're a good fit, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Even if you happen to be a good fit, they might think like, oh, but now I feel like, you know, Matt just asked me, said he needed work and he asked me to hire him and I hired him even though he is good for this. Now I feel like weird, like, like we hired him because he needed it, you know, like, Mm-hmm. Like you, you want to just remove that part of the equation so that it's like, hey, we found a project that's great for us to team up on. And to clarify, when I'm talking about these emails, all of these people I've worked with many times before. And so it's more when I'm emailing them with new work, it's kind of just like a heads up of like, hey, it's a way to stay top of mind. But also, you know, when I send them this funny influencer thing or whatever, and inevitably they have a project that's similar, they think of me. So it's empowering them to be like, oh, okay, well, I I can think of Matt and like it makes my life a little bit easier because I love working with him. And also I know that he has a really strong comp on his reel now. So here's my quick list. Number one, friends, you know, your friends that work in the industry, especially the ones that own production companies, make sure they know that you're a director and what you specialize in and that they've seen your work. Um, I think a lot of the work I've done with this company, Sawhorse, my my friends' companies um, and a lot of that comes just because we're friends and we were talking anyway. And then they're like, oh, hey, we might have this thing up. How would you shoot this? And then I tell them like, oh, do you want to try to shoot it? <laughs> you know, like that, that thing. And I'm easier said than done to have friends that are, are doing this. But you might have friends in the industry and you just maybe you're also a producer and you forget to you never really mention to them that you're also a director, you know, or or more frequently. You were friends in your 20s when no one had any money and everyone was just kind of making things and like you helped on their short film and vice versa. And then one of you decided to become a full-time director and the other one decided to start a production company and you continued to help each other out on small, teeny, tiny jobs. And eventually, hopefully, somebody's successful enough to help the other and that you kind of are rising at the same speed. Yeah. And I think it's worth mentioning, like a lot of the companies that have hired me in the last few years were started by directors who also direct commercials and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I think there's like this insecurity among directors, especially newer ones that like, like your friend who's a director who owns a production company would never hire you because they're a director. Like, why would they hire you Mm -hmm. if they can already do it themselves? But that's why it's important to like show them your style of directing. Like you mentioned, you're a comedy director, you know? And Mm -hmm. so a lot of times like these companies that are run by directors and owned by directors will hire me because I direct and my reel is right for a project that they don't have the reel for. Or So that's why it's important to show them your reel, obviously. Or because they're busy, right? Like the reason you start a company is so that you can diversify the number of jobs you're doing. If it's just one person doing all of the work And all of the, you can't be two places at once, basically. So if you have two directors who work underneath you, then you can double the amount of jobs that you're doing and therefore double the amount of money that you're taking home. Yeah. Or like Ira Rosenzweig, he's, I met him through our podcast um, and kind of stayed in touch and he's a comedy director. He directs the same type of stuff we direct, but he has his own company and he got a, an offer to produce something and he was going on vacation with his family. And instead of turning down that offer, he said, yes, we will do it. Let me 
but it's going to be a different director, but I'll oversee it. So that's helpful. Just friends that you already know. My number two is the thing you already mentioned, people you've worked with before, potentially that have moved to new places. A lot of times, you know, we've all worked with like Funny or Die, College Humor, like all these places and all the producers we worked with are probably at new places at, at this point. And it's worth just reconnecting with them. You know, I, I find that that tends to be my least reliable way to get new jobs. But every once in a while, something will pop up. But a lot of times, if you are right for their last workplace, you maybe aren't right for their new workplace, or at least that's how it is in their mind, you know? Yeah, it kind of um, depends. But yeah, 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 fair enough. Next is, you know, referrals, obviously, though, I'd, I'd put that one really low on the list. If I ask someone to introduce me to their company, again, that it kind of gets into like that sweaty department. It depends who's doing the referring. Yes, certainly. If if a company is like, oh, we need a comedy person and I'm going to ask my six trusted friends who I know are in the loop and your name came up twice, that's different. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the ideal situation. Right. But, if they need a referral. But if yeah, you yeah. are trying to meet them through a referral. Like, oh, if I was like, hey, Oren, I would really love to meet so-and-so. All these things on the list are ways that you can be proactive about meeting companies. Not about how companies right. will find you, but how you can basically get to companies, right? I've mentioned a million times on podcasts, I'm a huge fan of just putting your work on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, even like wherever those people are, and then also adding them as friends. And I don't think it's weird at all to add like someone you worked with three years ago as a friend on Instagram now, you know, because maybe yeah. you just saw them right now. So, yeah. and they might not add you, they might not follow you, but the social media network is a great place to show your work. And on the off chance that someone hopefully at some point, someone will see your work, like you said, at the right time. I recently got a couple job opportunities through Source Creative, which is a website that's a database of commercials that you can upload your work to. And they just like were looking for someone that had worked with kids and that had done visual effects. And so they just randomly like found my spots on there and they thought I had the right reel based on what they saw to pitch on their job. I do think. Like a cold email is not the worst thing in the world. Tony Franklin, Mm -hmm. one of our past guests, is really good at it. Takes like a lot of confidence. But if you believe that you're like a good director and there's a company that you're a huge fan of, I love Hungry Man. I love all their, I love Mm -hmm. the roster. I love what they do. You can email the EP and say, hey, I'm a huge fan of you guys. Here's my work. You know, I hope to work with you one of these days. That's it. I I think that's great. I think that it's worth caveating. You got to really be a fan. Do you know what I mean? Because oh, if yes, you get yes. an yeah, email, don't be phony. if you email hungry man and tool and caviar and you send them the same email, you're doing it wrong. And those are, I'm just kind of naming obviously the biggest comedy houses in the world, but like you should also hopefully, I mean, I think it's fine to email them, but like if you expect anything to happen, you should maybe find a company that, that your real makes sense for them. Like if you mm-hmm. made two YouTube sketches, you know, I don't know if, Tool is going to put you on the roster, but maybe there's a smaller production company. I think it's okay to say they they won't. (laughs) Unless you're a genius. Unless those two videos are the funniest things that you're... If you're getting hit up by Sundance to like play your YouTube videos in their shorts program and they have millions of views, then sure, maybe. Otherwise, short of that, you know, work, work on your stuff a little bit more. It's okay. Let's hop into our conversation with Cameron Fife after we remind people about Patreon. Patreon.com slash just shoot a pod. You should check it out. If you want to get anything out of this podcast, then 
throw us a buck, two, three, 25, 20 gets you a hat. Just shoot it, podcast hat. They are actually pretty cool and they do protect your face from the sun, which is very important as uh, our world starts melting. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks everyone. Let's hop into our conversation with Cameron Fife. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, well, Cameron Fife, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about what you do. I'm a producer. I do a lot of commercials. I have lately been doing a lot of stand-up specials, which has been a fun gig. Depending on the job and the scope and the company, sometimes I'm the production manager. Sometimes I'm the line producer. Sometimes I'll be a coordinator. I don't really, you know, work is work. And if I'm available and it's something I want to do, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll jump in wherever. So I've gotten to, you know, do lots of stuff. I used to do a lot of music videos. It's been about a year since I've done one. And I hope that I never have to do another one, but you know. Why do you say that actually? They're just the worst version of production. <laughs> yeah, but elaborate though. I think we're all on the same page, but for listeners at home, actually. There's kind of there's kind of three reasons why music videos are the worst. Reason number one, they usually don't get awarded until like five days before you're supposed to shoot. So mm. what happens is you do a bunch of soft prep, but nothing is for sure. And then it's like Monday afternoon at 6 p.m. And they're like, okay, cool. We're shooting on Friday. We need you to permit downtown five blocks, get a helicopter for a scene on a rooftop. And I'm like, there's absolutely no way we can pull that off. And they're like, we'll do it. And then somehow we do it. Or, um, or, or the worst case scenario is you don't get the job. And now all this prep you've done is for nothing. Oh, yeah. And then you don't get paid. And then you've hired people and you can't pay them. And so people are mad at you. Like, it's, it's kind of a lose-lose. That's number one. Number two. Many of the people in power executive levels are not on the up and up. 
not all of them. There are some very, very lovely people. Wait, what do you mean not are, on the up and up? Like not honest about like not honest, details? like steal money, treat people poorly, over promise, not respecting the process of like how long it takes to, to execute mm-hmm. things or what you need. And so just making your life difficult. That is also becomes a challenge is like you just don't really trust the people you're working for sometimes. And a lot of times it seems like expectations versus budget are not like really in check. Or like one project I worked on in particular where it was a really big A-list artist. I think our budget was like $300,000. And from day one, different people were skimming off the top. So it was like, oh, we need to pay this guy in cash and hey, whatever it is. And so then what happens is that the $300,000 budget is actually really only $150,000. Mm-hmm. And then when it's they start asking- skimming. It's a lot of skimming. <laughs> yeah. So then when I, when I have to be the one to be like, sorry, you can't have that. And they're like, what are you talking about? We have $300,000. And I'm like, eh, actually, but I'm not sure. going to throw anyone under the bus. So I just have to somehow solve problems. You know, again, it just makes my job so much harder and more stressful. The third reason is that similarly to the executives, most of the artists are assholes. And... <laughs> <laughs> they show up late, you know, they de- have all these demands, they cost They're doing money. you a favor to be on their own music video shoot. Yeah, I've had videos where they don't show up at all. I've had videos where they show up and then leave. I've had videos where they show up 12 hours late. The, right. the um, late thing or just the not showing up thing makes the least amount of sense to me because, and, and Cameron, you would know better than I do. I remember back in the day, half of the budget was the artist's. They're like, okay, out of the $300,000 budget, $150,000 is theirs. No. Sure. Yeah. That's how it used to be. Yeah, for sure. They get paid to be in the video? I thought. No, 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 no. They are paying. It's their their promotional tool. So they are are chipping in their money for the budget of the project. Right. Well, it's coming out of their like bottom line, right? Like, yeah, it's part of the expenses against their album sales or whatever. Right. Exactly. It's part of the marketing expenses. And yeah, I've been in situations where like when they're so ridiculously late or making all these crazy demands that the the label or the management will be like, okay, that's coming out of your pocket. And so then the artist makes the decision to, you know, either make these demands or not. Usually they do it because they don't care and they're so rich and they just have their people take care of it or whatever. Right. Here's the thing. Like I said, a lot of people are very lovely and I would never say that all of them are assholes, but... I maybe I just got unlucky and I worked with all the assholes, but I've worked with a lot of assholes. It's like, you know, I've done a thousand of them and I'm sure that if I wasn't working and something came up and I needed to, that I wouldn't say no. But right now I'm in a place where like I've been saying no to music videos. For music videos, who hires you? Is it the production company or the label or? Usually it's the production company. With me, most often it's a production company or it'll be like, the production company will hire a producer and then that producer knows me. So they'll hire me to production manage or I'll be referred by somebody to, to PM or coordinate depending. And are those usually union jobs or non-union? I've done a handful of union music videos. Most of them were non-union. I mean, I imagine that the really big ones, cause they, you know, they still make them all the time. So I imagine the bigger budget ones are, are union, but I was kind of in the hundred to three hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollar wheelhouse of music videos, and those mm-hmm. are usually not union. And sometimes they flip. So sometimes it's like a three hundred thousand dollar video that flips, and then that's a whole other. And do you have to deal with that as the UPM? Like oh, yeah. how the rates change and all that stuff. Totally. As far as like flipping, that's usually kind of one level above me. That's the production company level because they're the ones who have to go get more money and 
redo the contracts and all of that stuff. But like, yeah, I mean, I'm the one who has to do, you know, redo all the time cards and recalculate all the fringes and, you know, do all the, right. the fun. For our listeners that maybe don't live in like a place where unions have a lot of influence, flipping mm -hmm. is when you have a non-union job that becomes union while you're working on it and everyone's rates change and a lot of the rules change and you almost definitely end up losing a lot of money on it. And also just to clarify, oftentimes it's like the way that it typically works is it'll be, you know, mid-production and then people will kind of all receive notice like hey if you ever want to work in your respective union you cannot come back to this set or you'll be blacklisted the truth is i mean the difference between the union jobs and the non-union jobs is money it's way more expensive to do a union shoot because you have to pay in to mm -hmm. everybody's you know pension and health and the rates are higher and you know you mentioned the rules like one of the things that i try and do is or that i do do even when I'm doing something non-union, I still follow union rules because union rules are there to protect people and take care of them. Right. In terms of safety and hours and... Safety, hours, getting things. overtime, meal breaks, mm -hmm. you know, all of that stuff. So, you know, if you have a two or $300,000 budget, which for a music video is kind of on the walking the line. Yeah, I mean, it's bigger, but it's walking the line between going union or non-union. Vulnerable in terms of like the union might be able exactly. to say like, hey, we should flip this. This is too big exactly. to not be a union show. And the truth is usually, or not usually, I mean, always, like, you know, we pay people decent rates. We take care of them. We, we follow all these rules so that there's no reason for them to flip because they're like, well, I'm making my rate and it's a good set. And I think usually when shows flip, it's because things aren't being run well. And mm -hmm. are, right. Know, and issues. on the upside... For the people that are on a flipped show is, especially if they're not in the union and want to be in the union, then they uh, all of a sudden have an opportunity to get some union days and get to join the union. Yeah. Ultimately, yeah. the fringes like getting, you know, pension and health is like kind of one of the ways you can sustain a career in this industry, right? Otherwise, Absolutely. you're paying for your own health insurance, you know, all, all the things of all the issues of a freelancer is part of what like these fringes try to totally and and to be very clear like i'm very pro union and i think it's yeah, a yeah. very no, good yeah. thing i just you know sometimes you just can't afford them and one of the issues that does come up on union jobs is that with certain unions there's like minimum prep days or minimum like show like somebody has to be on for a run of show and it's like, well, you, we don't necessarily need that person to be, you know, for three weeks of prep and the union forces you to pay that. And so that's where it can be like tricky. And those are the things that make you decide to go non-union or union because they're like, well, we can't afford this. So, you know, we don't have a choice. Well, and I think what's interesting, like a, a $300,000 music video is kind of a horse of a different color. But I think that it's nice to have an ecosystem that's healthy, that trains people and lets them ladder up into the union. And I think that like music videos used to be that. And I think maybe digital commercials are kind of in that realm now where it like, I don't think it's the plan for any person to stay in those zones forever, but you do need to kind of, you know, get your legs underneath you before you join the union. Otherwise you're just kind of not up to caliber basically. Absolutely. I, I would not be the producer I am if it hadn't been for the music videos. Like I, you know, cut my teeth on right. really difficult jobs and that's what, you know, makes me good at what I do. I've been thinking a lot lately about like sustainability, you know, as a filmmaker in this business. And I 
full transparency, Cameron and I met each other 15 years ago and haven't really spoken since. Obviously, someone that's been in the business for 15 years is something that makes your answer about music videos, you know, like they're hard. The budgets aren't high. Yeah, they tend to be. If you're 22 and you're like, oh, man, so-and-so was mean to me, it's kind of a fun story. You know, when you're 35, (laughs) you're like, well, how am I going to retire? I can't retire off of insults. Yeah. And if I'm constantly struggling to pay for things and if I'm not getting health insurance through work and all those various things. And so I wanted to tie that back to just us asking you like what you do and, you know, to talk about being a producer. And I think it's interesting because Matt and I are totally in this exact same boat where we have our projects. We have like my movie and the thing I'm writing and this thing, but we also have our like money jobs, you know, the commercials and, and various things. And we love both of them. When I asked you like what you produce, you kind of started with the comedy specials, right? Even though, like Matt said, you've, you've also produced indie films, which I know you've also directed some of them and just written some of them. And I'm curious about like that, that thing. And Matt, I'm curious your opinion too. Like when someone asks you like what you direct or what you produce, like the instinct is to say something that people have heard of like first, right? Like all these comedy specials for Netflix or whatever, even though you have worked on Sundance stuff and like have your own movies coming out and things like, I'm just curious, like how you choose where to lean. You know, it's funny. Yeah, I don't always know. And sometimes it changes because I I do work on so many different things. It depends on who I'm talking to. Like if you're talking to your parents, friends, you got to go with like the most recognizable thing. Right. Totally. If I'm talking to my parents, friends, my friends back home, or even if I'm like at a party and I'm talking to like an executive or an agent or somebody who's like, oh, what's your deal? Then I'm like, oh, yeah, I just did a job for Netflix or I did one for the CW or, you know, when I'm talking to maybe other filmmakers or, you know, maybe PAs or college students or people who are, you know, just getting started. I tend to be like, oh, well, I've just done some indie movies and like, yeah, yeah, I work on these things Mm -hmm. because. But to be clear to the listeners at home, you have an indie movie on Netflix as we speak. I do. Yes. Right. So like the odds of a person having heard of it are much better than like, oh, you know, played a handful of festivals and we're looking for distribution. There's one out in the world. You could drop some names that people would certainly recognize, I guess is what I'm saying. I can drop names. I've produced a lot of indie movies and most of them have come out somewhere, but most people haven't seen them. So. I can be like, yeah, you can, you know, you can find Killing Diaz, but people don't know Killing Diaz. I've never been like, oh, I directed Killing Diaz. I'm like, oh, I love that. Like, no, nobody's ever seen <laughs> sure. that movie unless they know me, you know. I was just at dinner the other day with some friends of ours and we were sitting at the bar. The bartender was talking about how her mom's life is just like nomad land and it's exactly that. And of course, I'll never miss an opportunity to say like, oh, I worked on that movie. And my friend from... St. Louis is in the restaurant business, doesn't not really in the movie business. Like, what? You worked on that movie? I've never even heard of it. I was like, well, it won Best Picture, you know, last year. No big deal. <laughs> and then they're like, what? You worked on this movie that won Best Picture? Congratulations. Like, why did you never tell us? I'm like, well, I, I did the visual effect. It's not like my movie. So I only tell you about like my stuff, not like other people's stuff that I work on. But of course, depending on yeah who I'm talking to, that might be the first thing I bring up or something I never bring up. But it's totally it's just an interesting thing because, you know, obviously you came on this podcast to talk about your movies that, you know, I, I think, right, that you you're like the producer, the capital P producer on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And also to kind of answer your question from before, like I've produced, I think I'm up to nine small, very low budget movies 
since 2009. 2009 was when mm -hmm. I made my first movie. Most of them, if I made any money, it was very little. I always joke about how I have points in so many movies <laughs> that I'll never see. I think a lot of people can relate to that. So I, I would never say that I've made a living in indie film, but I'm able to make my living producing these commercials and comedy mm -hmm. specials and whatever. And so that's what makes me able to do both. So what keeps pushing you in the indie film world? What excites you to make your 10th film and your 11th film? For my personal things, I, I think I have stories to tell and I have, you know, scripts that are written that have not been made. I have ideas that have not been written. And I know that, you know, to get to the level I want to be at, I need to keep creating and keep producing and keep climbing the ladder. So I've had a lot of success and I'm very grateful for that. But I also know that I'm nowhere near where I want to be. I very often think to myself, like, why am I wasting my time with these indie movies? And maybe I should just be focusing on the like union comedy specials and the commercials because I make a living doing that and there's growth and I have a resume and all of that. And I definitely will keep doing them. But like, you know, those are short lived and those come and mm -hmm. go. And I want to make sustaining things that last that I can tell my parents, friends about. Every time we have a producer on the show, I feel like the model is slightly evolved. And I think that what you're doing is kind of in in the realm of like a, a thing that I think maybe Orin and I are the most familiar with, where it's like, okay, you have these money jobs that are shorter term, right? Comedy specials, commercials, music videos, all that stuff. It's not like you're on a network sitcom. It's not like you're like, oh boy, as soon as my hiatus happens, I'm going to sleep for three weeks and then go produce an indie movie because those people like their hiatus is six weeks or whatever. And then they're back on it. Like hopefully their show's gotten picked up or whatever. But so I think there is something interesting about a person who can make a good living on things that people have heard of. You can be kind of satisfied by them, but then also have time to scratch that other itch, I think is really fascinating. And I think is maybe the closest I've seen to like, oh, this is a sustainable model, basically. Totally. I mean, even though I do have to hustle and I do go from job to job, sure, I can go on vacations. I can take time off if I need to. I can buy things that I want to buy. Not, I don't mean like houses. I mean like, mm -hmm. you know, a hat. Sure, that sure. Yeah, yeah. Cool headphones. Cool <laughs> headphones. Yeah. No, these were a gift. Um, yeah. But uh, <laughs> but like, you know, for a long time, it wasn't that way. And even though I was working, I wasn't making a lot of money. And it was like always a grind. And I had a lot of years of not having a home or mm -hmm. living off of other people because I didn't have a choice. And by didn't have a choice, I mean... I didn't want to get a steady job. I was like, no, I'm going to work in production or work, you know, doing creative stuff. And um, that I probably made some poor decisions, but, you know, whatever. That was all part of my journey. And uh, I made it through and here I am. So you said, Cameron, that like, you know, you're not where you want to be yet on the producing indie film front. Like where where do you want to be? I definitely want to be writing and or directing bigger films that come out that people see. I want to work in TV. I want to be a TV writer. I want to be a showrunner. Showrunner to me is like the perfect balance of the two skills that I have, which mm -hmm. is writing and being creative and also being a physical line producer. That is like a dream job for me. That's a path that I want to go in. And it's not as easy of a path like in film and tv you can just make stuff you know mm -hmm. if you want to be a commercial director you can make a spec commercial and show what you can do music videos indie films tv can't really 
at least to get into the legitimate side, like it's a much, much harder path. I mean, you can go in through the writing side of things, right? You can write pilots and specs. I'm saying you can, I'm saying you can work your way up. I just mean like, you can't just make your own show that becomes successful. Whereas you can make right. a music video that. Unless you're Issa Rae. Sure. Unless you're, unless you're Issa Rae. Or I mean, high, again. Or high maintenance. There's a handful yeah. of. Or Broad City. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's <laughs> a handful. It's a, it's a it, the odds are against you. Sure. Well, that's the joke is like, especially with the indie movies are, you know, everybody always talks about like Blair Witch Project. We're like, oh, well, they made that for $25,000. Yeah, Napoleon Dynamite. But it's like, yeah, okay. That movie, that movie, uh, Paranormal Activity. There's like like four or five ever that have been made and had that success. And sure, it's possible. But like, there's been millions of movies made at that level that never saw the light of day, including a bunch that I've made. So The, the odds are not great. There's more than four or five. There were more of those than we're acknowledging. But more importantly, I think there's a lot of gray area in between a movie that's just in someone's closet and no one has ever heard of and a runaway success, right? Like there were movies that a handful of people have seen, but it's the right people, for instance, right? Like like Foot Fit right. Wit, Foot Fist Way is a, a wonderful example right. sure. of like a movie that like maybe... 10,000 people saw it, but one of them was Adam McKay, changed Dana McBride's life, right? Sure. Right. Primer. I guess a lot of people saw that, right? There's a lot of movies, though, that have launched the careers of the filmmakers. And I think that more interestingly and importantly, Cameron, I think that, like, I would bet that there's incremental success from your first movie to now, right? Like, Like, let's talk about that a little bit. Like, can you parse out any of the differences between the films you started making versus where you are now? And also you produce movies that you didn't write and direct as well. And I'm curious as to why, and maybe there's a little bit of confluence between the two. Honestly, the difference between my first movie and now, I would never say it's like a linear thing. Like it's Things up and double down. every single time, right? Yeah. When yeah nice. No, yeah. like the very first movie I produced was very low budget. I made it with my friends. I had written the script with my friend. It was a play that we had written. And then one of the actors who who was in the play what is like a pretty successful TV actor. And he was like, I, you know, am a filmmaker also. And if you guys can get some money for this, I'll direct it, produce it. And so we were able to get a little bit of money and and he really took the reins and like made it. So mm-hmm. even though I produced it, it's really, I think, his movie as much as anybody's because he, you know, he kind of did everything with it. And that one, I learned a lot, but I didn't physically produce that. I just like put together key pieces and made it happen. But then like a friend of mine had a, a fun found footage, a big, Bigfoot comedy called The Bigfoot mm-hmm. Project. Mm-hmm. And that one, I really liked the script and it was the idea of it was a lot of fun. Like, hey, we'll go out to the woods and shoot this thing. Um and he would and my friend was able to raise a little bit of money and so that one even though you know i was just strictly a producer on it i you know i felt like i was a part of it from the beginning because i helped him you know create this thing and that was the first movie that i like actually like produced produced. and what Um, film was that called what was it called? so that's called the bigfoot project uh and that one is available in places you can i think it's on amazon and whatever else um but that one we made for very little money and uh we rented a cabin in Big Bear and the entire cast and crew of 15 people total stayed in the same house. And then we would just go in the backyard of the house and film in the woods. And, you know, there wasn't that much woods. So we would like shoot, 
this way one day and then the next day we would shoot that way and um and it's fun it's a cute little movie there's some really great performances in it um, boy I, I bet it was fun to make huh it was the time of our lives uh yeah. we all became really close friends we've all worked together on tons and tons of projects since then we still work together the dp of that movie that was his first feature and he is now shooting huge stuff he just shot m night Shyamalan's last movie so you've produced nine features i believe that is the number i could go back and count but it's and how uh, many did you direct three three so six I've, you've produced six features that were directed by other people correct and when you look at the careers of those people like i know sujada who you know referred us to you and was on the podcast and you know you're writing you're directing you're producing these features for many many years and also doing kind of money jobs on the side but with the other filmmakers that you've worked with and teamed up with have you seen their careers like kind of jump up in in a way that you're also trying to do or is that you know or is just everyone different you know everyone's different i would say the only director who's really jumped up is the guy who directed my first movie. His name is Malcolm Goodwin. That's and a true story is the a name true of that story. movie. Yeah. And Malcolm, he's definitely has directed a bunch of other small indie movies and he's been directing TV, but he's like become a very successful and well-known TV actor. So that's like, you know, the majority of his success, but he also has been directing a lot of really great projects. And I know that he's got tons of, you know, good stuff in the works coming up with his team and all that. But honestly, it's usually more the DPs that, that find success. Um, <laughs> DPs get to work about three times as fast as us. It's the best job. Like in the time yeah. that we do one job, a DP we work with, will do like five but to 10 jobs. They have like a ton of creative influence. They're paid pretty well. They have like good status, you know, people treat them well. It's a good gig. Definitely a handful of the directors, Sujata included, haven't necessarily like blown up you know per se mm -hmm. but obviously like they're all on the way and they have great projects and sometimes i'm a part of them sometimes i'm not but like the guy who directed the bigfoot project he's been kind of grinding he's done a bunch of shorts and he's a first ad so we work with him a lot he was actually our ad on definition please he has some movies that are in the works that i'm a producer on and we're feeling good about his projects and you know i'm, I'm excited for him and i think it's a good movie and i think he's a good director and so I'd love to hear a little bit about how you finance these various movies. Cameron's shaking his head in dismay as Oren asks this question. <laughs> Even though you're a producer and that's like what you do for a living and that's your job, it still seems like the features are a little more on like the passion project side of things. A million percent. Like more the career um, growth, like the individual growth as opposed to like the money jobs. Since you're kind of more creatively involved in those than like something you're UPMing, let's say. Are you... Thinking about the business, like if we spend $150,000 and we sell it for $300,000 and we'll make this much money, or are you just like, let's put all the money on the screen and try to get into a good festival and try to have this movie make waves in the world? Um, no, I mean, I definitely am aware of the business side and the financial ramifications of certain decisions. And I try and operate that way, even when it's a creative passion project. I would say that's definitely one of the places where I could grow and develop because, like I said, I've made a bunch of movies and none of them have been like super successful. They've had, you know, relative <laughs> success, but nothing has made a hundred million dollars that I've made. You know, If a movie you made made twice its budget back, would you consider that successful? Absolutely. Anything that progresses mine or other people's careers is a success. So like 
Bigfoot project. We actually now technically have broken even and we're now in the green on that, but we also made that movie nine years ago. Um, that's how long it took to get our money back. Well, that's, but like, that's good. It's still generating money and the yeah, LLC awesome. has not been dissolved. <laughs> exactly. Actually, the LLC has been dissolved, but we're still making money. I just transferred the LLC. To me, that movie was a success because things that I learned, the friends that I made, the people mm-hmm. that I know. I want to circle back, though, to Oren's point about financing, because I think it's. I, I love that mentality of like, oh, if it advances people's careers, that's a success. But what sort of money are we talking about in that case, right? Because it's easy to say that about something that's out of pocket, even if that's a serious amount of money out of pocket, it's a little different if it's someone else's money, for instance. As far as like how I've gotten things financed, the projects that I've raised money for, which are a handful of the movies that I've produced, it's all family and friends. Sometimes it's like, oh, you know, my friend puts in money and then he gets his uncle or he gets his like mm-hmm. buddy from college or whatever. But is it uh, is it the traditional kind of here's the business model, here's the business proposal, this is how, how many points you'll get type of deal? Yeah, totally, totally. We present them with an investor contract. We show them how it works. We let them know like the perks and the risks. And when we were raising money for a true story, I met with my lawyer at the time and I was like, I don't know how this works. Like, what do we do? And he was like, the first thing you need to make very clear is that whoever puts money into an indie movie is probably not going to get it back. They need to be comfortable with putting that amount of money, like walking into Vegas and putting it on the blackjack table. And if they lose it, being able to say, okay, that's fine, whatever, and walk away and not think twice about it. But it's not a write-off if you lose it at the blackjack table. And that's kind of the pitch is like, yes, this is a very risky investment and you are really just more like supporting the arts, but you can write it off. There are ways to, you know, make this make sense for you. But the truth is that helps with investors raising like $10,000 here, $20,000 there. That doesn't really help with like the million dollar investors because Mm -hmm. they're not interested in a write-off. They want to make their money back as they should. So, you know, the level I'm trying to get to is to be able to have an indie movie that has a $10 million budget and with guaranteed, you know, returns because of the, you know, who we have involved. Attached people. Exactly. And I'm close and I'm there and I have those projects that I'm a part of. I just haven't made that film yet. I don't have that. You know, I can't say that I've done that. So Matt is right now kind of in development. He has a movie, a feature project that is kind of going around town. And Oren has a bet against me making it this year. Well, Matt became a father uh, recently. Congratulations. Thank you. I've been a father twice already. I said, once you have kids, it's much harder to get things done on a schedule, especially the first year of their life. <laughs> oh, God, I can. Yeah. And so I have a bet. How much is it? A thousand dollars? No, it is not. I think it's one hundred dollars. <laughs> one hundred dollar bet uh, with Matt that whether he makes his movie or not, and I very much hope he does make it, it will not be. In will not be twenty twenty two. Twenty twenty this calendar year. I mean, I know you're. You've talked about all all budgets, you mm-hmm. know, but you've definitely talked about the very low million dollar budget as well. Like when you think about your movie, like obviously you're a writer director. Like the main goal is for people to learn about you from this movie Mm -hmm. how much are you when you're pitching the movie how much are you saying like look at how much money this movie can make because of the genre because of the talent yeah yeah i mean i i think that the era of me being like oh i want to make a name for myself i think has kind of come and gone in a certain sense right in so much as like if you google me you find cool articles and like stuff that I've made and all of that. And I have like a nice little career, 
Yeah, but Barry Jenkins was like that too. He had made some indie films right. and worked as a post supervisor. Right. But I don't think that Barry Jenkins was saying, hey, I want to make Moonlight as like a little movie. He wanted it to be a big, real movie, right? And so I, I, you know, I'm maybe a little bit kind of in between on that because like I think there's a world where you shoot a feature not on like a web series, but like with your famous friends and like scrappy and like just kind of run and gun, but that can still make a dent. Like, I guess I'm, what I'm saying is, is that like me and Barry, we were both making movies for audiences, not just for proving ourselves or a calling card. Do you know what I mean? Right. That's a, one of the many, many things that Barry Jenkins and I have in common. What was your question, Warren? My question was like, how much, I mean, it's kind of like what Cameron is talking about too, is like, how much do you worry about the business side versus the career advancement side of things when you're making a movie. And obviously you want an audience either way, but like you said, Matt, like if you make the foot fist way and Adam McKay sees it, that's kind of all you need. I think that if you, I think there's two ways that a movie can be successful. If it's, you know, the most brilliant thing people have seen, if it doesn't make any money, but everybody loves it. And then you get the opportunity to make the next thing. That's a success. Or even if, the movie's good or not if it makes a lot of money then that's a success and the truth is if it makes a lot of money whether it, it doesn't matter if it's good or not if it makes a lot of money you're going to get the next opportunity so sure. definitely like i you know i want to make good movies and that is the goal and that's what i'm working on but i wouldn't hate it if i were if my name was on something that made a lot of money even if it was a piece of shit knowing that right. that i that like the room too exactly i think that maybe part of what we're talking about is saying like at this point in our careers, our sense of what's going to click with an audience maybe is a little bit more evolved or developed, right? I think when you first move to Hollywood, you're like, this is a good idea for a movie and therefore we should make it. And then you learn that like every single one of your friends has like 10 legitimately awesome ideas for movies, right? And it's not is this a good idea or isn't it that determines whether or not you should make the film? That's the baseline. Good idea is like just kind of getting your foot in the door. And then it's like, okay, well, does this have the right recipe of good roles for available talent with whom you have a connection to at the right budget and in a window of like underserved or, or thirsty audiences? So if you can figure out all of that stuff, then it makes more sense to make this movie, right? Then it's more likely that that movie is going to make money back. And it's not just like a, oh man, I got a good idea. It's like, I've got a good idea and here are all of the other elements that make me believe that it's going to be financially successful two years from now when actually people get to see it. Totally, totally. A lot of the things I've made are either like super indie or like pretty weird. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that is really important to me is I, I'm really close with a lot of the guys I grew up with and I, some of them are involved in the industry, but most aren't. But I always want them to watch my stuff and be like, do you like this? And all the time they're like, no, this is weird. I would never go and watch this. I'm like, okay. Like, would you buy this or click on this or whatever? Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you saw the thumbnail, would you click on this on Netflix and yeah, whatever it is. Um, So that's my goal. Obviously, like if I can impress my filmmaker friends, great. And that's always a good thing. But I'm definitely more interested in impressing my, my friends back home who aren't, you know, in the business. Tell us a little bit about Killing Diaz. I know you shot it in 2018, but is that kind of your latest project to come out? No. So Killing Diaz, uh, we actually shot it in 2016. 
And oh, it um, came out 2018. Sorry, on IMDb, it's a 2018. Yeah, I know. So basically, we shot the movie at the end of 2016. And my brother is a sound editor who works at Skywalker. And he works on a lot of my projects. And he was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm down to do your movie. And I was like, great. And then when we finished the edit. Four years later, he's yeah, like, okay, I'm ready. Basically, yeah. In like February, I think we had locked the cut. And he was like, all right, I just got onto a movie. Like, I'm not available until September. If you want, you know, if you need to go somewhere else, go for it. But if you want to wait. And so I just, I waited. So you're I waited like, go some- somewhere else free? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, is there a place better than Skywalker <laughs> that I can get for free? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and it wasn't like, totally. I have the entire Star Wars sound library I can use in your movie. Yeah. Uh, so I, so I waited and then actually we finished the movie. We did festivals for about a year. And that was 2018 when it was playing in festivals. Mm. And then I got a distribution deal. And then I found out as I was delivering the movie, I found out that the company was like super shady and I was warned against going with them. And basically because we had a signed contract, I couldn't just back out. But the contract said if I don't deliver by a certain date, the contract is null. So I just, again, <laughs> waited. <laughs> it's a longer story. I won't go into the whole thing. But Killing Diaz is a movie that like we shot in seven days. I raised a little bit of money from friends, but most of it was my credit cards. It was very much like a friend project. It was a thing that I had kind of created with my friends years before. We did it as a play. And then uh, it had like different versions of the play. And then uh, finally we made the movie. There's a lot of drag in that movie. Uh, it's not technically drag. It's just gender blind casting in a sense. Can you explain that? (laughs) All right. So basically the play, I'm going to try to like give the quickest version of the backstory of it. Basically the play was based on a real thing that happened with my roommates and I way back in 2016 when we lived in Hollywood together and it concerned a, a shitty roommate getting kicked out and sleeping with a neighbor and and then dealing with the after effects of you know somebody sleeping with a neighbor without intention of following up or being honest about it and in our you know early 20s stupor we joked about like oh you know hey what if what if this girl turned out that she had no friends or family nobody even knew she lived in LA you know we're five smart guys we could figure out how to like murder somebody and get away with it and we joked about like how we would murder her if we did. Obviously, it was all, you know, idiots right. laughing and joking. And then we were like, oh, we should write a play about this called Killing Diaz, where all of these things happen. And then we actually kill the girl. And then it goes horribly wrong. So I wrote the play. And the play ran in Hollywood for six weeks, you know, obviously self-produced. And it was really successful. People really liked it. It actually led to some writing work for me and some other opportunities. and then. I was trying to get the movie made for a couple of years, but I didn't have any success with that. And then a couple of years later in 2015, we decided to bring the play back and we got into a festival in New York. So we all went out to New York. And while we were rehearsing, one of the lead actors, who's one of my very close friends, and we worked together on a lot of stuff, he was like, you know, the political climate today is very different than it was when we did this in 2009. (laughs) And he was like, I don't think it's, okay for five white dudes to flippantly talk about murdering a girl named Diaz like it just just doesn't sit right and I was like you're right that's 
super valid. Uh, how do we remedy that? How do we, how do we take this piece and make it into something more palatable? And he was like, well, what if we flip it and we play women killing a, a man? And so we just changed the pronouns and a, a few details, but we basically kept it exactly the same. And then we just dressed in drag and we did the play um, as women. And again, it was very successful. It was <laughs> way more funny than the original version, just by nature of us being, you know, these clunky um, males in dresses and wigs. And so then the subject of like, well, how would we make the movie? And then we just kind of decided, what if sometimes they're men and sometimes they're women? There already was kind of a concept of like purgatory in the <laughs> movie. So what we kind of, you know, we kind of worked backwards to justify it. But basically in the world of the movie, when you're seeing what's happening in real time, you're seeing them as they are. So you're seeing men just as men and the girls that they are, you know, going to murder. Um, but when they are in this purgatory world, they are women and they're not drag queens. They're not transsexuals. They're just mm -hmm. women played by men. And um, there's kind of. You know, you one could say there's maybe no real rhyme or reason why they're men sometimes or women sometimes. And that's definitely a critique we got. Um, but, you know, the movie is different and it's fun and it's pretty weird. And, um, you know, I we you know, we got good responses from audiences and stuff. So I'm proud of it. I mean, I think you're touching upon maybe the other reason to make indie movies, though, right? Is like you can be experimental. You can try things out. Totally. You know, it's like a, it's a, a different, you know, on the show, we talk about business all the time, but we are artists as well. And so it's nice. It's, it's challenging because like film is one of those art forms where commerce is just inherently a part of it just because it's so expensive to it's make expensive. movies. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, in certain circumstances, you know, if you've got a bunch of friends and the material's already written and you can make it on the cheap it can still be an art project as well. Totally. And I mean, the dream for me is to marry the two and to be able to like make weird experimental stuff that's also commercially viable. And there are a handful of filmmakers that have achieved sure. that. Yeah. Uh, you know, right right now, obviously, like the Daniels, I think are crushing it. Sure. But also, stuff. I would say like the Safdie brothers or like... Safdie brothers, even PTA, like Paul Thomas sure. Harris's movies are weird, you know? And sure. I love that. That's definitely what I'm striving for. Obviously, in our wildest fantasies, I was like, oh, Killing Diaz will turn into this like cult movie and never quite reach that status. But, uh, you know, once a month I get a um, an email from Amazon and I get, you know, $14 or something. Sure. So a couple of people bought the movie. I'm like, all right, cool. Somebody's watching it somewhere. Yeah, know. that's cool. It's funny. I've talked to a handful of friends recently who are in the same boat in terms of like self-distribution and like. Once a month, they, they pull out the DVD box and they mail them off to all over the world. But it does, in a funny way, connect you more clearly to your audience. And so much as it's less abstract, like you literally know, oh, I know who this person is because I have to write their name on the envelope and go to the mailbox and drop it off for them. And that's different than views or, you know, like everything else is so, so abstract for us. I I would love to know who is clicking on the movie and watching it. I mean, yeah, that would be right. I, I assume it's like either an old friend or family member who just never got around to watching it. And they finally, you know, three, four years later, we're like, okay, I'll watch Cameron's movie. But 
I, I assume that's who it is, but like, I like to think that like, you know, some kid. And- Honestly, I think it's less likely. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I don't know about your friends and family, Cameron, but like mine I, are either going to watch the movie in the first six months or not. Mm, you know sure. what I mean? <laughs> very fair. Very fair. Yeah. Um, and I, I have some Katrina Bowden heads. Bowden? Yeah. So uh, Bowden, Bowden. I don't know. I, I say Katrina Bowden. Um, what's funny is Katrina's in the movie for maybe two seconds um <laughs> she she was in a true story our first movie and we stayed friends and so uh anytime i'm putting something together i always call her and she's always like yeah sure if she's available and so if you notice she's made small cameos in many of my movies um, maybe most famously katrina bowden is surrey from 30 rock, 30 rock. yes correct. yeah correct yeah and we met in 2007 when we were doing the play of a true story and she came on board to do a reading of it, and then she was like, yeah, let me know. Let's stay in touch. And so we've been friends ever since. What's next? I know you have a film in post. So I actually directed a an, another movie in December that we're in post. and Sea Cloud Park? Sea Cloud Park. So that was also a play that I wrote. Can I just ask, where are you putting up these plays? Are they, are they fringe plays, or, like, or is, are they self-produced, or how is it working? Yeah, they're all pretty much self-produced. Uh, I, I've, I've put up three plays that i've written and then mm-hmm. another one that um a friend wrote that i was in that i helped him produce we rent black box theaters in hollywood and, and produce them and put them up my background was theater that's what i did as a kid and i have a broadway family and other things and so yeah so theater is definitely my first uh yeah, what's a broadway family your family your family members my sister my sister did a bunch of broadway shows and her husband is in a broadway show and as actor it. as an actor as actors yeah and so i grew up just kind of in that community and in the bay area and san francisco where i grew up like i saw every show that came through and i did a lot of theater and my one of my other sisters was the technical director of a big theater and so just as far back as i can remember i hung out at theaters and was right. always i always wore a top hat to, to elementary mm-hmm. school top top hat and tap shoes and yep. uh yeah Canes. you put on um, the ritz so i put i constantly put on the ritz so sea cloud we actually shot it in three days we shot 90 pages in three days 12 cameras no we shot with two cameras but we shot in 8k so each each you right. know shot was basically four You're sizes reframing yeah yeah so we did a lot of reframing the truth is so post has been a, a big challenge like there almost isn't enough content and I was very optimistic that like what was in the script would just hold up for the entire run, but some things didn't work exactly. And so we like kind of re-edited scenes and moved stuff around and chopped stuff down, which when you only have like exactly 90 minutes of material, when you chop it down, it gets a little too short. And then like also the movie is half the original play. And then I wrote about another half of the movie to like fill in the blanks of the play. And not all of those scenes were like as developed as the, the play original scenes. So I did a bunch of like test screenings and kind of everybody would be like, Oh, these scenes were really strong and compelling, but these Mm -hmm. scenes kind of fell flat. And you're like, Oh dang, they're the scenes that I tested and, like and put workshopped like, and put up in front of an audience and tweaked every single night every single moment and then the ones that didn't work were the ones that i wrote and people were the like first hey, draft. Hey, the first draft, first draft yeah literally first draft yeah, yeah so basically 
I have a version of the movie that I could say this is done, but it's only about 68 minutes. And there are pieces that are boring that just don't Mm -hmm. quite work. And so I have been figuring out ways to make it better. And it's funny, like you were saying, what's the goal, you know, commercial success or, you know, just creative accolades and moving on to the next thing. That was actually like a, an exact conversation that I had with one of my friends who watched it and was like, what do you want to get out of this? And then I was like, well, I want to be able to sell it and get money back for the people that put money. And he was like, no, no, no. I mean, are you trying to show what you can do? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, I think you should cut 30 minutes out of it and just make it a really good short. That is an option, but I don't want to do that. I, Mm -hmm. I owe it to the actors. I owe it to the people who put money in to make the best version of this feature that it can be. And I don't think it needs much. It's just a, a couple of reshoots and a couple extra things to make it better. So I'm in the process of talking to the DP and to the two actors who are also EPs on it and figuring out the best way to do that. Kind of the blessing and the curse of where I'm at is I have been so busy going from job to job that I have not had time to like sit down and do it. And it kills me that I'm like, working and I'm grateful and I'm happy and I enjoy what I'm doing. But I also am like, oh, I, I have not had a minute to sit down and like rewrite these scenes or or produce, you know, rewrite it and then produce it and then figure out whatever. Basically, at this point, all of the reshoots and stuff are going to be paid for by me with my credit cards and savings. And so part of how much I'm working, like I'm just saving that money so I can just spend it on the movie. Hopefully I can get that accomplished in the next couple of months. And, you know, hopefully the movie will be finished by the end of the year. I think this is really fascinating though, because, you know, throughout this entire conversation, we've talked about a handful of different paradigms that you work under, whether you're, you know, it's a money job and it's, you know, capital H Hollywood, or it's a non-union music video or, varying sizes of independent films. And it's interesting to me that you're still kind of dancing back and forth between things that are a little more traditional, quote unquote, versus things that are a little more experimental. And when I say experimental, I don't necessarily mean like, oh, you know, you baked a camera in the oven and wanted to see what it looks like. Like, no, literally you were like, what if the experiment of like, what if I shot this play in 8K so that I could build coverage out of it in three days? Is that, a, does that work, right? That's an experiment, right? Totally. It sort of begs the question of like, I think we get the big picture of like, you want to be a showrunner. You want to be kind of like the, you know, I think we have that in common of like, everyone kind of wants to be like a big successful profitable filmmaker capital f filmmaker whether that's a showrunner or something else but in the medium and short term what do you want i'm curious you know is it something where it's like you want to continue to to do these lower budget experiments do you want to do stuff that's more in the mid budget that's a little more traditional like and and why like what's that next project i guess is what i'm asking i want to be able to experiment but have the money to actually pull off the things that are in my head because what happens is like killing Diaz is a perfect example I had all these really cool ideas of like camera shots and things that just weren't physically possible with the amount of money that we had so what you get is like a half-baked version of it and sometimes we get lucky and sometimes it just works and you're like wow that scene just landed and sometimes I watch it and I'm like I want it that's not how you know Mm -hmm. but I don't have a choice it's just it just is what it is 
Sea Club Park was, I think we had $50,000 and in cash. And then we spent another like 20,000 on credit cards. And it was, like you said, very experimental. I mean, we rehearsed a lot. We, there was so much prep that went into it. But I want to shoot that movie in three days with $2 million and do the same thing, but just have the money to create the worlds and rehearse the way I'd want to and develop it the way that I'd want to. And so that's kind of been the missing piece. To me, the goal is to, on each new project, to compromise less than I did on the previous project. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. And it's, it's not about limit. Like I love limitations. Like I love like shooting in three days or whatever, but it's like how many things that you want to do, do you have to give up because of the budget? Exactly. And I also am getting to the point and I always say this and I don't do it, but now maybe I'll really do it of like not compromising anymore, not accepting. Okay, cool. We got 50 grand uh, and you know, the DP owns the camera. Great. We can start with that. Like, just saying like, no, I'm not going to make this next movie unless we have the amount of money that it takes to make it the way I want to make it. I have a script that I wrote with a, a close friend and we've been doing readings of it and there's some talent interested and we're close. I mean, you know, you guys know how it goes. We haven't, we're not there yet, but there's all the, all the pieces are there. We just need to kind of get it all to coalesce. And like, we're really excited about it. We're going to co-direct it. We think it's really funny. There's definitely some weird things in there and it, may or may not work but that's one where we're like we're not gonna settle we're not just gonna you know because a bunch of people have been like oh just go and shoot it in the woods for you know 100 grand like no not gonna do that we want to get our millions of dollars we want to get our movie stars and and do it for real and and show what we can do so it almost sounds like it's kind of on a project by project basis right totally on a project by project basis the movie i was saying my friend who did bigfoot project that you know he might be getting financing to shoot this fall that's a movie that is very small and very much could lend itself to being super indie. And that's one where, and maybe also because it's not mine, I'm just a producer. So I'm like, yeah, cool, whatever works. But like that one really could be shot for very low budget because it's only two people for most of it in a house. But, you know, we're trying to get bigger movie stars and a bigger budget and have bigger effects and stuff. So, um, and I think it deserves it. And so that's, that's the route we're going. You're trying to shoot on the 5D Mark IV, not the Mark II. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Fuck that, fuck that sensor. If people want to find out more about what you're working on and what's next, where should they find you? I, I guess Instagram is a good place. Uh, it's Cam Fife. I have a website. I don't update it very often. In fact, I probably should give it a once over because I've done some stuff since I <laughs> last did my website. Is it junestreetprods.com? junestreetprods.com. There's a few links and a few things. Instagram, Twitter. I don't tweet too much. And also, you know, hopefully you just see stuff. I mean, that's what I always say. Like, I don't want to have to like promote and post and email my friends. I want to be able to just like make something and have somebody else be in charge of that part of it. Cool. Well, before we lose you, are you cool with joining us for an unpaid endorsement? Sure. Let's do it. Unpaid endorsements. So my unpaid endorsement, I saw on TikTok, actually, and it's a website called spoken.io, S-P-O-K-E-N.io. And basically what it is, is a website that lets you search for furniture that you would buy at like West Elm or All Modern or any of these like kind of like Urban Outfitters is a great one. Like these kind of like big, big mega retailers where basically those places are just like taking a white label piece of furniture and then marking it up like crazy. So like they pick out a cool chair, you see it at urban outfitters or whatever. And you're like, Oh man, this is so nice. And you're like, Oh dang, 
they're charging me, you know, $300 for this Lombardi adjustable desk chair. Spoken will list all of the other places where literally the same manufacturer has just sent it to a different place, basically. So I'm looking at a chair right now that's at Sam's Club for $130, whereas Urban Outfitters charges $300 for it. It's called Spoken.io. If you're like buying, you know, corporate furniture or whatever, you just need like something done. You're like, dang, this is just so expensive, but so chic at West Elm. It's probably literally this same piece of furniture at like someplace with less good branding, basically. So that is my unpaid endorsement. Uh, Cameron, what you got, buddy? Hopefully something a little more artistic than this. I think mine is dumb, but I will just say it anyways. I recently started watching a TV show that came out like six years ago and kind of came and went and I don't know how popular it was but I guess there were three seasons of it and I am really like I can't believe that I never saw it because I feel like it was written for me but uh it's man seeking woman have you guys seen this do you know this program yes yes, it is great it is exactly what I am going for in my movies and tv shows and I watch them (laughs) like oh they they pulled it off they they had the writing team and the creative acumen I just find it great and it's like really honest and real but also absolutely completely bonkers and insane i think it's really great give us the log line of of how the concept behind man seeking woman works your most basic premise which is a guy breaks up with his girlfriend in the first episode and is navigating the dating scene with he's got a, a sister who's in a happy relationship and an overbearing jewish mom and a best friend who's kind of crazy and always wants to party and every episode is him in a new circumstance dealing with either the breakup or trying to date or or both and his relationships with all the important people but every scenario is completely absurd and a fantasy and it's kind of like it's it's almost like dream sequences where it's the Mm -hmm. worst case scenario of what you might experience but it's always somehow still really grounded and really connected. A perfect example in the pilot episode is that he shows up to his ex-girlfriend's house thinking that she invited him so that she, they can reconcile, but she actually invited him so he could meet her new boyfriend. And her new boyfriend is Hitler, literally Adolf Hitler. And nobody seems to mind that she's dating a 130-year-old man who slaughtered 6 million Jews. And he's like, he's like but this guy's awful and they're like oh you're just saying that because you know because you don't want her to be happy and he's like no no no, i'd be okay if she were with somebody else i just hitler and everyone's like oh get you know get over yourself and like and it's very it's just absolutely ridiculous but also somehow like i said very honest it's on hulu i'm a big fan of the show i just started the second season and now i'm excited to keep watching warren take us home buddy I'm going to endorse a different podcast episode. I was just listening to Respect the Process, Jordan Brady's podcast about commercial directing. And he had a guest named Alex Snell, and she's a treatment writer and designer. It's a pretty recent episode. It's kind of long. It's like almost two hours, but she just breaks down treatments, the like order of information. You know, she's really into like finding your personal connection to whatever you're pitching on like kind of regurgitating the concept back to the client on page two, kind of finding images and her experience with different directors and what wins a job and what loses a job. And I just really enjoyed it. I mean, I kind of, I've I've heard interviews with treatment designers before, but I felt like that one, she has a certain take on making a 
treatment that it just seems very like honest and like excited by the opportunity as opposed to like, what should I say to fool them into hiring me? You know, like she has a way into it that just seems like genuine, which I like. She mentioned some of the sites she gets photos from, and she actually mentioned one I'd never heard of, and it's called flim.com, F-L-I-M. And it's kind of like a shot deck type of place. So flim.ai. Yeah, check it out. Cameron, thanks for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. Well, if you have questions for Cameron or uh, Oren or myself, shoot us an email at justshootitpod at gmail.com. Or you can tweet at us at justshootitpod across all social media. And you can follow me at Mr. Matt Enlow. And I'm on Instagram at OKaplan. I'm on Twitter at SmiteyPileg. This episode was edited by Noah Bayshore. The music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And rate us on iTunes if you get a chance. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.